0: Amen. Amen. Heather Bendix in the house. Thank you, Heather, for that. So great. Hey, welcome to 715, everybody. My name is AJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Covenant Church. It is so good to be with you tonight. We are starting our Advent season at Grace. Don't you love it? Look at this beautiful. This looks amazing. Thank you to our team here who makes our stage look so good. Um, We are going to actually also in 715 start a four-week series leading up to Christmas on Advent itself. We're going to be talking about the prophetic promises of Advent, the practices of Advent, the preparation and the purpose of Advent, and then the person of Advent itself. So I hope that you would join me and a few of your other favorite pastors this month for this Advent series. I think you'll get a lot out of it and make this season really, really rich in depth and in meaning. Because um, I think American Christianity, we're very familiar with the Christmas season. We're very familiar with even maybe the Advent season um, and the story there. But I think um, that if we go deep into this and we spend some time working through this word, this meaning, this season, and then ultimately the whole scripture, uh, we're going to get a richness of depth out of this story. You know, we, we as, as people who exist in, in 2020, um, who know, maybe we know the gospel, we know who Jesus is, we know um, about his death on a cross, we know about his resurrection, we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story, and we focus on the end. It's a great ending. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes I think we forget the beginning. And the Bible says that God knows the end from the beginning. And so I think maybe we too should put the end of the story in context of the beginning of the story. And that's what I want to do tonight. Um, And I want to tell you the story of the Bible and, and walk through a whole bunch of scripture and passages, and I pray that you would read along with me tonight because uh, my prayer is that this word comes alive for you as it did for me. Uh, so I'm going to tell you the story, and where is the best place to start a story? Throw it in the chat. In the beginning, exactly. So let's look at the beginning. The creation story in Genesis begins with God uh, existing in this uh, watery, Dark void. Uh, And then he begins creating. He begins bringing life to it and beauty and separating the waters and the heavens and the earth and plants and animals and trees and fruit and all of this wonderful um, creation. And then he makes man in his image and appoints man to steward over it, to participate in this life giving creation process. You know, if we leave creation alone, it it will flourish and trees will produce fruit and, and grass will grow. But when mankind particularly harnesses the power of creation, we can add beauty to it and create things beyond just natural creation, like our neighborhoods and buildings and art and and agriculture that feeds millions. And it's this amazing thing. And, And God has given us creation to steward it, to care for it, and to enjoy fellowship with him and enjoy his love and the beauty of of intimacy with God the Father in this life-giving creation to walk in freedom with him. And this begins to define our relationship with God, which is that God wants to bless us. And in fact, he often goes out of his way to bless us, to give us good things, and then in turn we tend to ruin it most of the time. And in chapter 3 of your Bible, page 3 of your Bible, this figure enters the garden. Uh, it's a serpent. It's this mysterious figure. We don't know where he came from. We don't know, you know what he is at, at this point in the story. But we know that this is a creature that is in open rebellion against God. We know that this is a creature who is deceptive and misleading. And we know that this is a creature who is, who is, who is trying to influence mankind off of the path that God set out for them in this life giving, abundant garden and get mankind to follow his path. And we do, we do, we give in to the serpent. We listen to what he says. We mistrust God. We take on ourselves the power of deciding what good and evil is. We take that from God. We put that on ourselves. We become the masters of our own destiny, the masters of our own fate, and, and, and we follow the serpent, and it leads us to utter destruction. We take the choice of good and evil upon ourselves. We reject God in that moment, and we follow our own path, and this sets out The entire motion of the Bible. Genesis 3, God returns and he finds Adam and Eve. They've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one rule God said to, to, to not break. The serpent says, do it. It'll make you like God. Just trust me. Don't trust him. And we do that. And God comes to them. He doesn't curse the man and the woman. But he says this to the serpent. Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, "'cursed are you above all livestock "'and above all beasts of the field. "'On your belly you shall go, "'and dust you shall eat "'all the days of your life. "'I will put enmity between you and the woman "'and between your offspring and her offspring.' He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is God saying? You've got to remember that this is, this, this is, this is poetry. It's poetic language. It's not Western narrative like we're used to, where this is, this is literal, like there'll be little babies and little baby snakes like fighting. Like, that's not what God is saying here. He says to the serpent that you will be cursed above of everything else, You're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust all of your days. This is less about a serpent having four legs and then not having four legs. This This is about like when I compete against you and I say you're going to eat my dust, I don't mean I'm going to make you lay down on your belly and crawl on the floor. When I say you're going to eat my dust, I mean I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to crush you. I'm going to defeat you. And what God is saying to the serpent is that I'm going to put you to shame. And I'm going to defeat you. In all of your days, you will, you will eat the dust of the ground. And how will he do it? He says, I'll put enmity between her offspring, the woman, and yours. And he will crush your head. He. Who is this he? It's a descendant of the woman. This person in the line of humanity that is to come, that will ultimately, in this epic showdown, it's this image of this foot coming to crush the head of evil, to crush the serpent. And as the foot crushes the head, this viper delivers this, this fatal blow. And in this epic moment of, of head crushing and heel bruising, the defeat of evil is achieved in, in this time. Epic. This is the third page of your Bible, and this is the overall motion of all of Scripture, that evil has entered the world, and God is going to destroy it. He's going to overcome it, and he's going to do it through the line of humanity. He's going to use mankind, somebody from Eve's Eve's uh, uh, lineage to do it. This is incredible. And so we're going to now look for this he in Scripture, And I'm going to tell you the story of the Bible. And so hold tight because we're going to go through it. So you turn the page in Genesis. You keep reading. You keep reading and you get to Genesis chapter 12. And there's this man named Abraham. Well, Abram. And God comes to Abram, um, who he selects out of all of humanity. He, He picks Abram to be the father of his covenant people. And he says to Abram this. This is Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, God selects Abram to be the father of his covenant people, and through Abram, he has a plan to bless not just Abram, but all families of the earth. God, again, he's leading with, with blessing us. He's leading. We have ruined creation, and yet he's leading with a plan to, to bless us. Um, God actually ups the Annie later in Genesis and says, not just all families, but all nations of the earth, and I'll make a nation out of you, and kings will come from you, and all this amazing stuff, um, and we're gonna speed through this, but Abraham begins having kids. He has Isaac, he has Jacob, he has a son named Joseph. And Joseph is alive during this great famine, and all the Hebrew people, all the families of Abraham, uh, uh, have to come into Egypt where Joseph is, and he feeds them, and it's great. And then they take the mandate to be fruitful and multiply very seriously. So the Hebrews begin to multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply, so much so that Pharaoh begins getting really concerned about this immigrant population who is rapidly increasing, and so he enslaves them all. Speeding along here. Again, read Genesis for all these stories. They are phenomenal. And after years of slavery, hundreds of years, of slavery, there comes a man named Moses. And I'm sure you've seen the movie or heard the story. Moses, through some plagues and some other amazing feats, he leads God's people out of Egypt, right? Out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, he's a deliverer, and he leads them to the foot of Mount Sinai. Covered a lot of ground here, but stick with me. So now we're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has led God's people out, and our story here takes another huge leap forward. You know, we've got God saying, I'm going to to use your offspring to defeat evil. And Abram, it's going to be through your line that I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And he brings Moses up the mountain. And he says to Moses this. This is Exodus chapter 19, verse 3 through 6. The Lord called him, Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." God takes the promise that he makes to Abraham and he opens it up to all of Israel. And he says this, if you will, if you will obey my voice, which is to say, do as I've commanded you to do. And if you will keep my covenant, if you just do those two things, if you listen to me, and keep covenant with me, then you will be my treasured possession, and I will make you a kingdom of priests. I will make you, Israel, this holy nation through which I will bless all nations. He promotes them to being priests. What is a priest? A priest is an intermediary between God and humanity. Priests go to God on behalf of people to intercede for them to make sacrifices for them, to make atonement for them. And God says to this nation, you will become this kingdom of priests and you will intercede on behalf of who? He doesn't say, but we remember what God said to Abraham. I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. So now we have this nation of priests And shortly after this, God then gives them the Ten Commandments and then eventually the 613 laws come. And this is, I love this because it's hilarious because in verse 8, we read verse 3 through 6. So in verse 8, the people say to God, remember God said, if you'll listen to my voice, keep covenant with me, you'll be a treasured possession, you'll be kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And the people say this, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they definitely don't. They absolutely do a terrible job of listening to God and keeping covenant with him. They fail miserably. Why? Because we take the blessing of God and we ruin it. Just We have a habit of doing that. We have a nature... Of doing this, but the story's not over yet. So let's keep going. Hundreds of years pass. Um, the Israelites are doing a very bad job of keeping covenant with with God. We have judges that rule over them, and it seems like each one is worse than the last. Each has these epic failures and shortcomings, and then the people they demand a king. Give us a king, we want to be like the other nations. So God gives them a king, King Saul. Saul starts off pretty pretty good, and he has an epic, epic failure and ends his, his life in just in ruin and, and disaster. And then after King Saul, we all know who comes next. The man after God's own heart, the last son of Jesse, David. And King David is, is a righteous man, and he's a righteous king, and, and, and and, uh, and he loves the Lord with all his heart and he appoints Jerusalem as God's city and he brings the people there and he realizes while in Jerusalem that the Ark of the Covenant, God's temple presence or God's presence on earth has been residing in a, in a tent for all, 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 all these years. And David says to God, God, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a temple for you to reside in. And I love this because God hears him say that and says, thank you, but no thank you. Matter of fact, I'm going to build you a house. And just again, God's blessing is so rich and and, and is so constant that David is trying to do an honorable and righteous thing. God, I'm going to build you a temple and just, and just build you this place where your presence can be and it'll be just beautiful and holy and set apart. And God's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a dynasty is what he means. And God says to David this in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 10 through 14. You it up with me? Yeah. Okay, we're good? All right, we're King David. God says this, First Chronicles 17. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. Your, 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 your offspring. Huh. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. So this is like, this is like all of these little threads are starting to come together. And what God says says, to David here. From David's line, which is Abraham's line, so it's the same line continued, will come many kings, king after king after king, and one of those kings, one of David's, one of David's offspring, will establish a kingdom that has no end, a kingdom that will rule forever. I think, I think God says it three times there about how this kingdom will last forever, and I'll be with him forever, and his kingdom will, will last forever, this offspring will be the one who builds the ultimate temple for God's presence. Uh, temples are the place where who does their work. Priests. So priests does the work. In the temple and, and, and this offspring of David will be a king who has a kingdom that lasts forever. He will build this ultimate temple presence here on earth. He will do the intermediary work between mankind and God, and this offspring is going to have this this father son relationship with the Lord, this covenant. This covenant intimacy, this bond that that God can only describe it as a father and a son. And God says, I will not take my steadfast love from him. So it will be this unbroken covenant love between a father and a son. And I hope you're starting to see these pieces falling together. We've got the offspring from the line of, of Abraham and the line of David. Who will, who will accomplish priestly work on behalf of the people, who will be like a son to the Father, and who will establish an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that has, that has no end. And this is laid out over hundreds and hundreds of years of Scripture. This is not like this was written as a fiction novel by somebody who was bored and said, this would be an amazing story. This is, this is hundreds of years of history being documented and kept, and piece after piece after piece is falling into place. Like I, I hope that you're seeing God's providence in all of this, because we often struggle with God's timing. It's like, <laughs> God's made a promise, and I want to see the fulfillment, like, like now, and when I don't, my faith begins to, begins to drop. But I hope you see God's hand in his providence through all of history. This plan of this, this serpent-crushing he, this king, this priest, this one that is coming as a son, this is taking time. And do you know why? Just as an aside, because if this was the work of one man sitting down and writing this, it's easily refutable. But when this is hundreds of years between these generations, I mean, there's no way you can just manufacture this. There's just no way that you can make this up. There's no way that, that what happens in Abram's day and what happens in David's day should correspond and link to where we're going. So all of this, though, it points forward. Uh, it's pointing to somebody, somebody coming, something coming, this he, this king, uh, and, then, and, then, and then hundreds of years pass again. Uh, hundreds of years go by, and David dies, and son after son after son of David they give in to the serpent, just like you and I. And they fail and they fall. Uh, they pursue money and sex and, and power and all the things of this earth. And ultimately, the kingdom of Israel crumbles and it's overtaken and the people are led out in exile. And eventually, the kingdom itself will fracture into two. And it's this, it's this image of a blessing of a kingdom that is ruined by man because we've given in to the serpent. And you have God's chosen people in a fractured kingdom, many in exile. I'm kind of mashing some timelines up, but giving you the picture here. Um, In exile, out of Jerusalem, under the rule of another king, under oppression again. And they have the scripture and the hope, but man, I mean, hundreds of years are passing. And so God introduces these figures, these enigmatic and bizarre figures who speak on his behalf, They're the prophets, and there is one prophet in particular that I want us to spend some time with tonight, because while Israel is exiled, while they're serving under the rule of ungodly kings, there are these voices that are reminding them of a number of things, Often they're giving warnings of conviction and correction and, 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 and calling people, God's people to repent and, and to turn back. But also they're bringing messages of, of hope. Often they're bringing messages of, of lament and grief. And Isaiah is kind of uh, the pinnacle of the prophets when it comes particularly to messianic prophecy. And in Isaiah 11... He pens this beautiful prophetic poem. I'm just going to read the first 5 verses, but actually if you want to read the first 10 on your own time, it's 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 incredible. This is Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. From the stump of Jesse, who was David's father, and it's like David and all of his sons, it's like they were all chopped down. It's like they all fell they all failed. They all gave in to the serpent. They, they, they all missed it. None of them were, were able to do it. Even David, a man after God's own heart, from this stump of Jesse, it's like this little sprig of new life will, will shoot up. And this, and this sprig of new life and new hope is a man. And on this man rests the spirit of the Lord. And in this man on whom the Spirit of the Lord rests, we see that, that, that he is led by wisdom and understanding, by counsel and by might, by the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So, so he doesn't do things the way that we do things. He doesn't, he doesn't think like we think. He's much wiser. He doesn't rule like we rule. He's much, much more, much more just. And if you continue, if you, if you have the time to read verses six through ten, it, it be uh, uh, Isaiah. He lays out this just very bizarre set of pictures of like the most dominant apex predators lying down with like the most meek and humble of prey. And it says he says even that that the lions will will eat. Of the grass. And it's like through this sprig, through this man, that all of creation is going to go undergo this this healing transformation. And it's and it's quite like it's going to return to what the garden was. Because if you read in Genesis carefully, God says he gave to the man and the woman plants for food. I'm not saying you have to be a vegetarian. I'm just saying that I think at original creation, that's all we needed. And I think that's all lions and tigers and bears needed as well. But in the fall, all things are corrupted and, you know, we're killing each other and and, and all of this. But God redeems the food chain. My point is not that the food chain will break down. My point is that creation itself through this man will undergo this healing transformation, all of it, under the lordship of this one man. So here's our first prophetic promise of the night. That the one who is coming will be a just, fair, and wise ruler, filled with the spirit of God to bring a peace to all nations. This is what Isaiah lays out for us. In Isaiah chapter 11. And doesn't that matter to us now more than ever? Like, doesn't today, aren't we more worried now than ever about the justice, the wisdom, and the equitable rule of our leaders? Who isn't worried about our leaders today and whether they're going to be led by the Spirit of God or not? And this is why. This is why every election season we talk about we the church talk about who is seated on the throne in heaven. It's not because our leaders and the policies of this day don't matter and we should just oh forget that it's fine we look to heaven. No, it's because we are citizens of a king who sits in throne in the king in the throne room of heaven who leads us in wisdom. He leads us in understanding with counsel and with might, with knowledge and with the fear of the Lord. He leads us with righteousness and with equity he decides for the meek. This is why this matters so much as we look and fix our eyes on the one that is to come. And Isaiah is reminding the Israelites of this. That despite their suffering, despite their personal abandoning of God, despite their personal lack of faith, that God has not abandoned them. And that one is yet still coming. And yet the Israelites are still under the oppressive rule of wicked kings. And so Isaiah also pens these beautiful poems of lament. And I want to read one to you now. This is Isaiah 59, verses 12 through 16. And again, all of this I just encourage. There's more reading around this, but because I'm using so much scripture tonight, I'm only, I mean, I'm still selecting five verses, but read the five before. This is Isaiah 59, this prophecy of of lament. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, And we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. God creates us and places us in a garden to share an eternal fellowship, to participate in the harnessing of creation, to bring more beauty and more life as we walk in freedom with the Father. He gives us the whole keys to creation and we have made it what it is today. We've taken the good blessing of God And we've ruined it. And God looks down over all of humanity for just one. Just one person to intervene. Just one to do it right. Just one person to go before. And he looks over the span of all humanity and he finds nobody. Not even one that is righteous. And what is his response? I'll tell you what my response would be. Just wash my hands of it. I would be so frustrated that time after time after time I have tried to give blessing. I have tried to help this people. They have done nothing for me and yet I love them and I would just start over. That is not what God does at all. He looks over all of humanity. He sees that there are none and so what does he do? He himself will come. His own arm will will achieve salvation. His own righteousness will sustain him. This is our second prophetic promise of the night. That the state of our world and the human condition, it breaks God's heart as much as it breaks our hearts. He is looking for someone to intervene. And when there is no one, God himself will come and do what no one else can. This is what's coming. This is what is adventing. So what will this coming one do? Let me read one last prophecy from Isaiah. It's one that you're very familiar with. In fact, this past Sunday, we read it as our first advent scripture. It comes from Isaiah chapter nine. What is the coming one doing? Isaiah 9, verses 2 and 3, and then I'm going to read 6 and 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have increased the nation, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over David's kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. We who are in this deep darkness, who have taken the beauty of creation and turned it into what it is today, we who are walking in deep darkness, God is sending a light to draw us out. He's sending a light to draw us out. A child, an offspring, an offspring is to be born. A son, like one who has a covenant love relationship with the father, a son is going to be, it's going to be given to us, not born to us, but the son will be, will be given to us and he will be a wonderful counselor to us. He will be an an everlasting father to us. He will be a mighty God to us. He will be the prince of peace to us. And he will establish a kingdom on, on David's throne. I'm going to build you a house, David. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And from that dynasty, one will come who will reign over a kingdom who has no end. And he will uphold it, how? With justice and with righteousness the spirit of the lord is on him and the spirit of wisdom and equity and righteous ruling and that is ultimately how the hebrew bible ends all of these plot lines all of these words all of these prophetic promises all of these all of these things are coming to a pause. Let me read my third prophetic promise to you. Third prophetic promise is this. One who is coming, the one who is coming will rescue us from darkness, will lead us into light. He will increase our joy and be to us a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. And his kingdom when established shall be upheld with justice and righteousness forever. We also see in the Old Testament prophets in Isaiah 7.14 that, that a virgin will give birth to a child and the child will be called Emmanuel. We see in Micah 5.2 that, that the king is going to come from the small town of Bethlehem, but that's how the Old Testament ends. And so we're in the new covenant, so let's, let's turn the page. And as I close with this final, final passage, let's just turn one page over to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. And you're holding all of this that we've talked about in the back of your mind. You're holding these, these plot lines in tension because you, put yourself in their shoes, don't know the end of the story. You're in the middle of the story. And you're looking and you're looking and you're looking and you're hoping for, for, the, for this one. Matthew chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph but before they came together, she, found, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, ding, ding, ding. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, son of David, from the root of Jesse shall come a shoot, and he will have the Spirit of the Lord on him. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take this child. It's from the Spirit of the Lord. She will give birth to a son, And you are to give him the name Jesus. Jesus, the name in the Hebrew is Yeshua. The long version of that name in the Hebrew is Yehoshua, which is where we get the name Joshua. And the name Jesus, the name Yeshua Yehoshua, means the Lord brings salvation. Or the Lord saves. Or as they would have read it, Yahweh brings salvation. Look at verse 22 and 23. The virgin will conceive, oh sorry, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Give this child these two names, Yehoshua, Yeshua, Jesus. Yahweh brings salvation. Emmanuel, God with us. In the whole tension of all that we spoke about from, from this serpent crushing foot, to this king of a kingdom with no end, to this great priest in this temple presence, to the son of the father is this tension of, of, will God do it through humanity, as he said in Genesis, from her offspring, Abram through your family, David from your line, or will God himself do it? I have looked and found no one. My own right arm will bring salvation. How is God going to achieve Salvation for his people through humanity or he himself? Yes. Yes is the answer. That in Jesus is God with us, the Lord bringing salvation. And this is what has come to us. The deity of Christ sits right there. In the whole context of the story, God is bringing salvation as God is coming to be with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire storyline of the Bible. Through him, evil is defeated. The head of the serpent is crushed. Through him, all nations of the earth are to be blessed and brought into God's covenant family and his kingdom. Jesus is our great high priest who, going before God on our behalf, will atone for our sins he will ultimately take the punishment we deserved from giving in to the serpent. He'll take that on himself. Remember that Jesus goes into the desert 40 days to be tempted and he doesn't give in. He doesn't give in to the serpent. Jesus is the son of God. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. He is the king of an everlasting kingdom. When Jesus shows up on the scene to do his ministry, what are the first words of his message? The kingdom of God is at hand and if we if we would believe in him if we would put our trust in him then we would enter into his kingdom as a born again citizen the inheritor of a new everlasting life to share in the beauty and the goodness of all creation in this life and the one to come. And that is what is available to us through the advent of Jesus Christ.